The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect the official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly Cash Act, Moral Hospital, and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. And that sweet, sweet non-interruption, Paul, <laughs> you know what that means. I mean, sadly, Stuart's not here, but tonight on the Curbsiders, this is a Tales from the Curbside episode where we recap multiple recent episodes in a somewhat rapid fire fashion. Tonight, we'll be going through peripheral arterial disease, abdominal pain, anemia of CKD, or as we called it, the iron CKD episode. And then we'll be covering a little bit of our diarrhea episode, which was split into two episodes. And I feel like that is just... There's so many potential puns, Paul. I'm going to throw it to you. Tell the audience, what do we do on this show? Just even the covering and diarrhea mashed together. I didn't like it. <laughs> and the mashing. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> None of it's good. Um, yeah, so ordinarily, we are the internal medicine podcast that uses expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. Um, for those of you familiar with this series, this is actually where we reflect fondly back on past episodes and and recollect the experts that we talked to and talk about the best teaching points um, that we sort of called from each episode. Maybe not the best, but the ones that we like best at least. And so Matt, why don't you lead us off? I think we'll talk about the peripheral artery disease with the amazing Dr. Lochter first. That's episode number 260, but number one in your hearts. What did you take away from this episode? What pearls of goodness did you did you glean? Well, and, and real quick, Paul, before we get to that, I wanted to remind the audience because we've had some comments about this. So these Tales from the Curbside episodes are shorter episodes taken from longer ones. We These are not available for CME credit, but through our partner, VCU Health Continuing Education, you can go back and three of the four episodes we cover on this were available for CME credit at VCU Health's uh, website. You can go to curbsiders.vcuhealth.org for that. Hey audience, I wanted to tell you about BetterHelp. I've been using this service for over six months now, long before they were even a sponsor on the podcast. I think mental health is very important and this is something that I wish I would have done for myself a very long time ago. BetterHelp makes it very easy to sign up. They assess your needs, match you with your own licensed professional therapist and you can start communicating in under 48 hours. BetterHelp offers a broad range of expertise. Even if it's not locally available to you, you can access it through BetterHelp. They can actually help clients worldwide. And on BetterHelp, you can message your counselor or you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. You can avoid that uncomfortable traditional therapist waiting room. And it's really easy to anonymously enter mental health counseling and take care of yourself. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. So visit betterhelp.com slash curb, that's better, H-E-L-P, and join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and the Curbsiders listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash curb. So on to episode number 260 with Vlad Lacker. Uh, and 
this graphic, wonderful graphics done by Edison Jang for this and produced by yours truly, uh, or not yours truly, by yourself, <laughs> by you, Paul, by Very you. Associative episode. Sure. <laughs> okay. So I love, I love the way that uh, Vlad told us, like when you're talking about peripheral arterial disease, like the big decision point is, is there critical limb ischemia present or not? Because if the patient is having critical limb ischemia, that's a totally different workup. Like you're, you're pretty much thinking this person is going to need a surgical intervention. But if they have claudication, then they may not require revascularization and the treatment and some of the testing that we do is going to be different. I, I mean, to me, that was helpful. I'm not sure how you were working this up. I was just throwing the, the kitchen sink at everybody with peripheral arterial disease. Yeah, I didn't have I didn't have nearly as clean a framework, and I thought it was really helpful to dichotomize either like this is someone who's going to need intervention, or this is someone who doesn't need intervention right now. And like I think that's that's also the breakdown between critical limb ischemia and peripheral artery disease. And I, I think just even thinking about it that way helped me relax a little bit because I feel like I could probably pick up on critical limb ischemia, even though I think he gave us some great tips and definitions like looking for vascular ulcers and looking for um, like rest claudication, that kind of stuff that can differentiate a little bit too. Um, but just being able to separate those two things out, I thought was a helpful place to start from. Right. And claudication, meaning like they're only having exertional symptoms. And you, you mentioned the physical exam, the, the kissing ulcers between like where the toes touch. Uh, that's something that I'm now looking for. I haven't, I haven't found any yet. It's only been a short time since we recorded this, <laughs> right. but uh, that's, that I will, it will be a very exciting day, Paul, the first time that I find a, a kissing ulcer. Yeah, for sure. I'm dreading it and looking forward to it. Exactly right. <laughs> yeah, bad day for the patient, but uh, <laughs> so, but you, the audience knows what I mean. Anyway, uh, when so if someone does have claudication and they're not headed right to see the vascular surgeon, you you put them on the treatment is like stuff that we as internists are very good at doing, which is put them on a statin, an antiplatelet agent. Um, there's a little bit of nuance there, but for the most part, uh, baby aspirin will do the trick. And then aggressively modifying any risk factors, especially smoking. And I loved the way that Vlad talked about like the home exercise program because Paul, you remember the Clever trial, right? I well, tell me about it because it's not just a catchy name. <laughs> so the Clever trial was the trial where this was patients with, I believe it was aortoiliac disease, mm -hmm. and they looked at, you know, is a home exercise program uh, as good as stenting? And they found that for the patients that were in this structured, um, structured exercise, sorry, I don't think it was necessarily a home exercise program. It was a structured, it was, in the, in the it was trial, a structured exercise program uh, that those patients, and I think they'd had something like 12 sessions over eight weeks. It was whatever the standard, um, you know, your, like your standard therapy type course is. And those patients actually did uh, just as well as they did with stenting. And so that tells us that this is something that we can at least try as a first line just because you find somebody that has claudication doesn't mean that you need to send them right for surgery unless they unless they have critical limb ischemia and basically having they're having pain at rest or they have like gangrene or something like that. So yeah, he busted out that like that amazing term um, ischemic preconditioning, which I now use as often as I can just because it sounds cool. And the idea yeah. is just sort of getting your body used to not having, <laughs> I guess, just getting your body used to having sort of demand ischemia is kind of my understanding of it. That that doesn't sound as cool as the way he made it sound. Um, in addition to sort of, I think forming collaterals is the other sort of thought that this supervised exercise program also helps you, um, helps to do to actually manage your symptoms uh, of claudication, if I, if I understand correctly. That, that's, that was my understanding too. And what I liked about that point was the way we got to that was I said, well, in this clever trial, they were doing three times a week for 12 weeks. 
and it seemed like it was very structured, but it, it can be hard. Like some patients just don't want to go into physical therapy. They've had a bad experience with it, or they don't have access to an exercise program. And he says, basically what I tell my patients is I want you to walk for 30 or 40 minutes total time. And if you start to get pain, you stop and rest until it goes away. And then you walk again until it recurs. And you just repeat that cycle for 30 to 40 minutes. And over time, they will get this, as you said, Paul, ischemic reconditioning, which is is pretty simple and definitely something that in addition to the risk factor modification that that you could do. So I think that's really useful for the audience to have in their back pocket. Well, that's kind of, it's a next door neighbor to, to another thing that I learned from, the, from that particular episode, this idea of... Um, sort of inducing ischemia. So the idea of if you have a patient, so we, we talk a lot about diagnosis and how do you actually make the diagnosis of uh, PAD um, after you suspect it, whether a patient is giving you claudication symptoms or some other reason to suspect it. And so what if you have a patient where you have a cl- high clinical index of suspicion, the patient says it uh, uses tobacco and has all the right risk factors and it's hypertensive and, and uh, diabetic and on and on and on. And they're giving this great story for claudication and you get the AVIs and they're, they're normal. What, what you could do next is actually consider exercise ABIs. And I was never quite sure of what the role of those things were or not. And actually sort of the same general idea is just is get the patient moving and see if you can induce ischemia that way. And that's another way to diagnose someone where you have a high index of suspicion, but you haven't quite made the diagnosis with the resting ABIs. And then Dr. Lochter also talked about adding uh, pulse volume recordings to actually help determine the level of pathology. So there's a lot of I guess when you're an interventionalist, it sort of matters where you're throwing stents in. So <laughs> you use these to actually find out sort of where the blockage is. So then I guess you can work around it or, or pop it open or whatever those guys do once we actually get it to them. So that that level is, it turns out, it sounds like it's not all that important. You don't really need angiography or you don't need to define that too cleanly until you're planning an intervention. And that generally doesn't happen unless conservative management um, has failed the patient uh, or they progress to say critical limb ischemia. I think what was confusing me about the workup was a, a lot of my experience with patients that are going for a vascular surgery, it's because they're admitted to the hospital with essentially critical limb ischemia of some sort. And then I see the full workup unfold very quickly where right. they're getting like the pulse volume recordings and they're, yeah, they're, they're getting the sequential pressures and we're, or they're even getting like a CT angio or just a conventional angiogram to locate the, the level of the lesion. And then they're having intervene upon. If you're seeing them in clinic as a primary care, if they only have claudication, you just want the binary, is this claudication or not? And if it's claudication, you just do the the risk factor stuff and the, the home exercise program we talked about. Um, so I think that's probably, if people were confused about it like I was, I think that's probably where you were seeing it, just the context where you're seeing it is what determines the pace and how aggressive you'll be. Yeah, so that's a great point. I think that this episode, I mean, we went really detailed into the physical exam and a lot more details about how all the the various diagnostic testing work. So if you're interested in that, definitely check it out. It was a a great episode. The next episode that we're going to talk about, Paul, is it was actually two episodes combined uh, on abdominal pain. This was number 261 and 262. It was produced by Sam Mazur with graphics by Beth Garbatelli. And our guest was Dr. Andrew Olson. And Paul, what was your what was your big take home point from this one? I feel like you could sum it up pretty quickly, but then we can, uh, you know, we'll dig in. Yeah, no this this one broke my heart a little bit. Like it was a great episode, and I thought um, Dr. Olson was obviously an incredibly smart guy, and I really appreciated his um, his approach to things. But my my big takeaway is that the physical exams just not all that great <laughs> for <laughs> for making the for making the diagnosis and, and abdominal pain like it, it sounds i think that the point that he kind of kept returning to 
it's pretty good if you're trying to assess whether or not someone has an abdomen that needs surgery. Like if someone's in in a lot of trouble and needs to go to surgery, then the physical examination can help you looking for things like rigidity is sort of useful. But if you're trying to really nail the diagnosis, there's not a whole lot that we do that we've been taught in medical school that is actually changes likelihood ratios all that much or really clinches the diagnosis. I don't know what it's. I know right. there, there's some. I, I mean, I, the, the surgical yeah. abdomen, you know, for the acute episode, which is the first episode, we really were talking about peritonitis and how to identify it. And we talked about rigidity and percussion tenderness and how rebound is kind of uncomfortable for the patient. And if a patient's having serial abdominal abdomen exams, you don't really want to like, just think about your patient and their comfort level when you're doing this. And he talked about just like the surgeons, they basically go by, they put their hand on the abdomen and they're like, this patient shall have surgery. (laughs) That's kind of what happens. (laughs) Uh, There's unfortunately uh, not a lot of great like things that you can do at the bedside other than just feel a lot of normals and then know when you feel something that's like, uh uh-oh, this person needs to have a surgery right now. So I agree with you there. The the other thing is that, I mean, POCUS, Paul, selfishly, I, I love the fact that when we were talking about ascites, how to identify ascites, I mean, Paul, it, I, I was trying to think of this when I was preparing for this. What was that test that Justin was talking about where the his co-resident was laying on the bed underneath the patient on all fours and percussing yeah. the abdomen? Right. Well, that's that, the puddle sign. One of my favorites, which I, I'd heard in the past, um, is probably the most sensitive for ascites. But yeah, the patient on all fours, which means the abdominal, like the acidic fluid is then dependent. And then you can actually tap out near fluid levels. So that's supposed to be our best test. I've never actually seen it done in real life, and I nor would I recommend it. Right. It, it can't be good for anyone. So um, with, and also it sounds like POCUS might be a little bit better for looking for ascites anyway. Yeah. POCUS, uh, POCUS is great for looking for ascites. You look in the right and left upper quadrant around the liver, uh, the, the liver, the spleen, the kidneys, and then you look in the paracolic gutters down on each side and then around the bladder. And it's a pretty easy exam to learn. I was actually just teaching it at a, a POCUS, mini POCUS course recently. And it's a, it's a very useful exam and ultrasound is becoming so widely available now and the students and the residents are learning it. They're very interested in it. So I think this is going to just become, you know, the, the fluid wave and, and the puddle sign, all that stuff is, is really not going to be there. And we also talked a lot about cirrhosis, how really cirrhosis is a, you're putting the physical exam findings along with a lot of the lab findings and the imaging findings to make a diagnosis of cirrhosis. So with the abdominal exam, Paul, I know you love physical exam. You should still examine your patients, feel a lot of of abdomens that are normal so that you can tell when there's really something bad going on. But uh, we, a lot of imaging and labs are, are needed to help us with the context of everything. Yeah. It's just rolling through the disease states. You know, you take something like peptic ulcer disease, you can't, there's no one single physical exam finding that's going to sort of nail that or pancreatitis. That's not even part of the diagnostic criteria. It's, it's part of your armamentarium, um, but it is not going to cinch the diagnosis in the vast majority of cases, uh, unfortunately, was that my big takeaway. Folks, medicine is a team sport, and no matter how smart you are, how hard you work, how many curbsiders episodes you listen to, you need a team to take care of patients. So what tools do you have at your disposal in order to build this incredibly important team? I might suggest Indeed. Indeed is the job site that makes hiring as easy as one, two, three. Post, screen, and interview all on Indeed. Get a quality short list of candidates whose resumes on Indeed match your job description faster. Only pay for the candidates that meet must-have qualifications and schedule and complete video interviews in your Indeed dashboard. Indeed makes connecting with and hiring the right talent fast and easy. 
With Indeed Instant Match, over 80% of employers get quality candidates as soon as they sponsor their job post. According to Talent Nest, Indeed is the number one source of hires in the U.S. and delivers four times more hires than all other job sites combined. If you're hiring, you need Indeed. Join over 3 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent. Get started right now with a free $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash internal medicine. Get a $75 credit at Indeed.com slash internal medicine. That's Indeed.com slash internal medicine. Offer valid through June 30th. Terms and conditions apply. So next up, I mean, and and Stuart's not here to talk about this, Paul, and he dropped out halfway through the episode because of various (laughs) difficulties. Uh, But this is episode number 262, Iron Deficiency and Anemia of CKD. So this was part of Neff Madness. It was produced by Stuart Brigham, and it featured the great Dr. Joel Toff, Matt Sparks, and Pascal Karaya, who's been on the show before. Uh, And it, it was a really fun episode. We talked all about the treatment of iron deficiency, specifically in CKD, which of course we all see a lot as internists. Paul, you want to start us off? What was your favorite pearl from this one? Yeah, my favorite pearl, probably not surprisingly, is that oral iron, I think, has probably gotten a bun wrap. Like we, it's gotten a lot of hate. Um, It's not something I think we've, I'm not sure what your experience has been, Matt, but I've seen a lot of wild enthusiasm now for iron infusions. We jump right to it just because they, they give you such immediate results and theoretically they're tolerated so much better. But it turns out, you know, as we talked about multiple times in the show, every other day dosing is actually fine for patients, not just fine, but probably better than daily dosing and they actually get um, better absorption. The concern for constipation, we may have been over-concerned about that. I think someone calculated the number needed to constipate. It was joy. Um, and, we'd have yeah. to treat, <laughs> and we'd have to treat basically 10 patients uh, with iron to get uh, one patient who experiences constipation, which is not nothing. That's still pretty substantial, but it's also not if you wave iron around someone, they become immediately constipated. So it's not quite as evil as we initially thought. So I think the takeaway point that I liked is that it's not, it's reasonable to try iron first if someone's not profoundly iron deficient and then transition IV iron if the patient's either not responding to the oral iron or does develop intolerable side effects. We tend to think of ESAs, um, erythropoietin stimulating agents, um, erythropoiesis stimulating agents and and CKD and anemia. And I, I think that you had some points about those, Matt, if I remember right. Yeah, I I do, but before we before we get off the oral iron, I think all our guests were pretty after having done this review of the evidence and th- there's a great blog post uh that was part of Neff Madness which I'll link to in the show notes for this, but they all pretty much agreed that they do still give even though patients with CKD or patients on dialysis do um do have like some chronic inflammation, they will still give a trial of oral iron in many cases for right. 1 to 3 months, repeat the numbers and unless the patient is like super symptomatic or uh, just is just not going to tolerate the iron after after a trial, then then they then they jump to the iron, uh, the IV iron. Uh, I do. I think Paul, maybe we're partly responsible for for some of the <laughs> IV iron enthusiasm um, because of of past shows we've done. But uh, it certainly does. For, if you get the right patient, you give them IV iron infusions, they do feel better pretty quickly, which is which is re- still remarkable, but. Moving on to the ESAs, as you were saying, Paul, in I think the historical context here is interesting because it, before you and I were practicing, I, I believe Joel said it was more like in the 90s, maybe early 2000s, these agents came around and, and patients were with on dialysis were walking around with hemoglobins like five or six, like they had very low hemoglobins and they were getting transfusions much more frequently. So these drugs were really like revolutionary when they came around. I think where they 
flew too close to the sun on wings of pastrami, Paul, as we, uh, the Seinfeld fans out there, um, they pushing people towards a normal hemoglobin with these agents can cause some real harm. There was a signal for major adverse cardiac events. And there's, I'm not sure how strong the signal is, but there's concern for like cancer, you know, stimulating cancers with these agents. So now the goal is much more mild. It's like, if you get the hemoglobin in the nine to 10 range, um, that's, that's reasonable. And that's, that's what you're targeting for the most part. And that's, that's what we talked about based on the KDGO guideline. And then Paul, after talking with them about this, this this concept of absolute and relative iron deficiency is something else that I I was aware of it. I think we've called it by different names, maybe, you know, anemia of chronic disease. But right. uh I, I like how K Digo actually just tried to put some numbers on it. Um, how evidence based these numbers are. Uh, you know, I, I think that stands to be but but at least for right now, this is this is what most people are following out there in practice. So I feel comfortable saying them to the audience. But so absolute iron deficiency, you know, the two numbers that you really should look at for iron deficiency is the transferrin saturation and the ferritin. And if the if the transferrin saturation is less than 20, they could have an absolute iron deficiency. And if the ferritin cutoff differs between patients with no CKD, patients with CKD that aren't on dialysis and patients with CKD who are on dialysis. So so for patients with no CKD, it's 30 for patients with CKD not on dialysis, it's 100. And for patients on dialysis, it's a ferritin um, less than 200. So th- those are your ferritin cutoffs. So if, if someone on dialysis has a ferritin less than 200 and a TSAT less than 20, you can call that an absolute iron deficiency and give them IV iron. And the other useful point I thought was, uh, so any any patients in between that don't quite meet absolute iron deficiency, you can call it a relative iron deficiency unless they have a transferrin saturation greater than 30 and a ferritin greater than 500. And from what I could read, the expert opinion there is those patients probably have enough iron and they're unlikely to respond to like aggressive right. iron therapy. But, you know, that can all be, that that was all a bit confusing to me. I do feel a lot more clear now. People can look for the show notes if they want to see that spelled out because I know it's it might be hard to digest in the audio medium. It's a lot of numbers. Yeah. It is a lot of numbers. It is. So- you know, in summary, give your patient a trial oral iron every other day. Give it a one to three month trial. See what what happens with their iron stores. If if they're not responding, you can you can move them to IV iron, which we know is safe safe now, well tolerated. And uh, be careful with the ESAs. Don't try to push them to a normal hemoglobin. And I think that's really the summary of that episode. It it was a lot of fun. So definitely check it out if you didn't hear that, which was part of Neff Madness. So, Paul, what's next on the agenda? Next up, we have episode number 266, um, number one in your hearts. This is our <laughs> acute diarrhea episode with Dr. Iris Wong, produced by Elena Gibson with a graphic by Elena Gibson. Um, we talked about dysentery, which I enjoyed very much. It had a very sort of Oregon Trail feel to it, um, for those of you who remember <laughs> that. So I, a couple of takeaway points that I like from this, but we, we because we mentioned dysentery so much, that's probably the part I most enjoy. But um, basically, we talked about you have to differentiate bloody stools from rectal outlet bleeding, which was another phrase that I'd not actually used, but makes a lot of sense now that I think about it. So the idea being is that the blood has to be within the stool and not just from hemorrhoidal bleeding. So you make that differentiation. And if indeed you do have dysenteric diarrhea, that should prompt, among other things, a microbiologic evaluation. And I think, Matt, you'll talk more about what sort of warrants checking microbiology studies and what doesn't. Um, so actually, why don't, why don't we let you talk yeah, about I, that? Yeah, I, I think it makes have... sense to talk about that a little bit here because when you talk about the workup of diarrhea, I, I think 
everyone thinks like, oh boy, there's so many possible tests I could order. What am I going to do here? And she made the point that if a patient is well enough that they're not hospitalized, like for the most part, you don't need to bother with testing. Which is exactly what I wanted to hear, by the way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if it, if it, the logistics per- are a nightmare. Right. Exactly. And, but if it, if they are sick enough to be hospitalized, then you can consider getting tests. Uh, it just depends on how, how long it lasts. Definitely if the person's really having high volume stuff go on and they're, they're very sick and it's been going on for more, more than 72 hours, you could, it would certainly be reasonable to test them. And we talked about C. diff. She made the point that C. diff is now, it can be community acquired. It's not right. just in your hospitalized patient and not necessarily everybody that has C. diff is going to have recently been on antibiotics or hospitalized. So you just have to have a high index of suspicion, but I wouldn't send it for like every patient that calls your office with one day of diarrhea. I would, if they have like 72 hours or if they're sick or admitted, they have some of the other things like high white count and you, you know, then you can, then you could potentially send them. And we talked about those PCR panels. Do you, do you use those in your practice, Paul? No, almost never. Like I've, I've not gotten them used. So I think one of the points that she made is that, um, that almost for all testing, it's sort of acute diarrhea. By the time you get the results of the testing back, it's almost always resolved. Like yes. I, I've not found them hugely useful for the most part. What about yeah. you? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the cultures for sure. Like a, a lot of the times where I've, I've had the cause to order a culture, by the time it comes back, like the patient's already better. In some cases, it was sent like in from the emergency department or, you know, very soon after they hit the floor. And by the time I see the patient the next day, they feel better. Right. And uh, and then the, the PCR panels, even though sometimes they come back, they almost suffer from this like oversensitivity is what uh, Iris was saying, where they you might just pick up colonizers that are just like not pathologic. And then you're in this conundrum of like, is this real or not? So I think the patients that you can be more aggressive about getting, um, if they're hospitalized, it's not getting better, you know, after a couple days, or if they're hospitalized, super sick. Or if they're immunocompromised, I think that was the other other um, you know if they have HIV/AIDS or uh, some other uh, immunosuppression, right? Yeah, then then that would be a time where you would be more aggressive about getting the stool studies. And then as far as treatment, Paul, do, do you feel lucky and do you uh, do do you give loperamide to patients with C diff or with an acute diarrhea? It's I feel. Better now uh, giving it with with acute diarrhea if I have a low suspicion for C diff. I, I, I used to fear it because I was afraid I was going to give everyone toxic megacolon, um, but now I feel a little bit better giving it because for the most part it's probably not going to be C diff. Um, but if I suspect it, I might just hold off. What about yeah. what? What is your practice? I'm pretty much along the same lines. I, I think it goes by uh, it, it definitely goes by the clinical course. If it's C diff and the patient is pain free and they are you know white counts normalized and they're, they're, they're eating, but they're just having like a little bit of more of this, like what I now would think is this like post-infectious diarrhea, then I might, I might do it. If it's somebody that came in with basically anybody that's not that sick, that has a pretty benign abdominal exam, and it seems to be getting better, I might give them a, a couple doses, but you do have to, I, I, I think you just have to get comfortable sizing people up and seeing, um, which way they're going. Cause some of these people with C. diff, they do get, they, it does the diarrhea persist and they get sicker on you even after they're on treatment. So, right, you know, that, sure. that's the one time I'd be careful. But if it seems like someone's really progressing well, and you think they're in this more like a post-infectious diarrhea phase, I would feel more comfortable. Can we talk about the post-infectious diarrhea? Cause I, yeah. I, it's, 
I just love it as a concept. It's not something I, I, I think I knew much about before, where we have the idea being is you have this initial infectious insult that actually causes erosion of the villi. And this, this part that if I knew it, I forgot it, is that lactase is found in the very tip of the villi. So you actually, you have this almost like IBS type picture, but you also have this acquired lactose intolerance as well. So the, the infection is not the then cause of etiology, or at least the direct cause of etiology. It's instead um, this sort of villus disruption and sort of lactase um, deficiency sort of acutely happening, or I guess sort of post-infectiously, that is the cause of this diarrhea that persists, if I understand um, yeah, the pathos that's, correctly. That's exactly, that's exactly what she said. And I mean, I, I have definitely seen this. Uh, patients will, and patients kind of figure it out. They say, you know, I had that illness or um, I, I think even sometimes patients, it doesn't necessarily, I've seen this with just patients who have course of antibiotics and their flora, it seems like their flora changes and they're like, I can't tolerate things I used to be able to tolerate eating. So it it, it is, uh, we we still don't understand this whole like microbiome and all that stuff. Not that the, not that the villi are, are necessarily, what you were talking about is the same thing, but I do feel that people that have a major illness, sometimes it just seems like their constitution changes and they have to reevaluate the way that they were eating. And I, that's a conversation I've had with multiple patients. And I know we talked about it a little bit on the, the chronic diarrhea episode, but the, the FODMAP diet, the way that she institutes it is she, she really tells patients, she encourages them if they are going to like, let's say someone had a post-infectious diarrhea and it's really become bothersome and it's not getting better with just cutting out lactose you know, putting someone on a FODMAP diet, what she was talking about is you, they work with like a dietitian because it's a very restrictive diet and you right. wouldn't want to keep someone on it long-term, but you're trying to systematically like figure out what foods do and don't trigger your symptoms. So that is something that I talk to patients about if they're, if they're struggling, like if they have an acute diarrhea that's progressing into a chronic diarrhea, I'll talk to them about trying to be systematic about the way they're eating and giving them a list of foods, some foods that might, might be more likely to cause symptoms than not. Um, and at least, at least I feel like I'm doing something for them, Paul. I don't know. I don't know how, what my success rate is. I haven't been tracking it. Well, right. I mean, it's just, it's the illusion of movement though. Along those lines, I, I remember you were in love with the, uh, the mate, the do it yourself oral rehydration solution. Did you want to talk about that? Well, yeah, because I just think it's so, it's such a cool thing that you have these patients with cholera and I know the World Health Organization uses this a lot. We just don't use it in the States as much, but we're, we're giving patients IV fluid. And if you can, you know, why aren't we using, why aren't we just having like buckets of this, you know, uh, re oral rehydration solution around hospitals and giving it to our patients, but on an outpatient basis, I believe there are some brand names uh, out there, she mentioned some of them. I think Pedialyte was one of them that can, um, that that can you know kind of substitute for the WHO uh, rehydration solution, or you can mix it up. And I'll I'll put this link in the show notes. But it's like this is a quote from the WHO website. It's half a small spoon of salt and six level small spoons of sugar dissolved in one liter of safe water, and that's how that's you can make your own. Free. Yeah. Or if you want to just go on Amazon and order a bunch of the packets there, you can also order the packets that are pre-mixed and you can put them in your water. But uh, definitely a plug for that. And then, uh, Paul, we got to start using more bismuth. Have you been? Have you used any of this, like the bismuth subsalicylate? It's not, you know, it's obviously I'm aware of it. I think patients know to use it. I've not actually bridged that gap and just made the formal recommendation for it. So I should, I should probably just be recommending it far more frequently than I have. 
Yeah, I be, I think it's super cool because it's it it actually has labeled indications for diarrhea, dyspepsia, and uh, well, travel traveler's diarrhea as well. And it has you know, and theoretically this makes sense. And it has actually some anti secretory properties, antimicrobial properties, maybe even some anti inflammatory properties. Uh, I think the one downside is that it has to be taken multiple times a day. But uh, you know, it's it, it's a pink liquid. Who doesn't want to take that multiple times a day, Paul? Right. Yeah. No, I think just because of the way it looks, I, I just assumed it was some sort of vague coating thing. It just, uh, all the, <laughs> like, the pleiotropic activity of it uh, would surprise me once I actually heard about the, the potential evidence behind yeah. it. Yeah. Audience, if you don't know this about Paul yet, uh, he loves the pleiotropic activity of everything. Statins, <laughs> SGLT2 <especially>. inhibitors. <laughs> what other pleiotropics have we talked yeah. about, Paul? I Anything don't know. you can wave your hands at. I just, yeah, <laughs> it sounds great. Yeah. All right. So, Paul, with that, I think, you know, we've done Heroes work tonight, uh, recapping uh, like four, four or five. I've lost count. I think it was four, four great episodes of Curbsiders with some fantastic guests. Thanks to all our producers for those episodes. Paul, do you want to take us to the outro? Yep. Let me bring it home. This has been another episode of the Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. There you go. Get show notes at thecurbsiders.com. And while you're there, sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. And we're committed to providing you with high value, practice changing knowledge. But to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts. You can contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to Paul Williams for co-producing this episode and to our social media team, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Twitter, Maddie Mad Dog Morgan on Instagram. Tima Karganov is on the website. MJ Allen and Jeff Carter are on the transcription team. And Chris the Chew Man Chew is on Facebook. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And we would be remiss if we did not thank Stuart for composing our excellent theme music. We should also thank the great Claire Morgan of Notterly for editing our audio. And as always, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.